Honey, you shrunk the kid's bodyguard. In honor of the hitman's wife's bodyguard, what cinematic wife deserves an action spinoff? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and they should never remake The Thin Man, as they keep threatening to do. But if they do, it should be an action movie in which Nora is the main character. I'm Matt Patches. I'm going to go with um, Glenn Close's The Wife. No. Oh. Uh, I'm but David. She the Se- gets a gun. She gets oh, a gun in the new okay. Movie. Okay, got it. Yeah, with it with a gun. Uh, I'm David the Seven. I'm going to say Connie Britton as movie coach Taylor's wife because then Connie Britton could be a Nexus being and the same across all Friday night timelines. I'm David Ehrlich. The first thing that came to mind was definitely Vicky Creeps and Phantom yeah. Thread, but uh, to keep things on brand and stuffy, I did watch Ingmar Bergman's Through a Glass Darkly this weekend and. Uh, I can only imagine what a Harriet Anderson action movie based on that character would look like. It'd be extremely problematic uh, and it would involve her probably fighting spider gods. Uh, so you're saying that the choice of Phantom Thread wasn't on Brandon Stuffy? I mean, I suppose it was, but Phantom Thread's not stuffy. Come on. Everyone loves like mushroom sex marriage. Very hot, very in, very they trendy. They don't have sex with the mushrooms. I want to be clear about that. No, they, they do. You just don't see it. Just because it doesn't happen on screen doesn't mean it doesn't happen. The subtext Come everyone on. understands but me. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's a Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 353. It is pandemic 65. It is the week of Wednesday, June 16th. That is the day that in 1978, the movie Grease, directed by Flight of the Navigators, Randall Kleiser yeah. was released. The theme Woo. continues. He also... Do, do, uh, do we like also, Grease around here? Do we, well, are we no, Grease? the theme of Flight of well, the he Navigator. Also directed Honey, I, he also directed Honey, a, I Blew Up the wow. Kid, which is where the lightning round reference came from. Wow. I'm more of a Grease 2 fan myself. Is, you reproduction, reproduction. Is Randall Kleiser still alive? Is he around to know that we're thinking about him all the time? He better be rebooting Flood of the Navigator. <laughs> no, you guys are doing that. Coming on board. He's an he's executive producer oh, on our eight-part prestige series. Uh, yeah, Disney Plus, Mayor of East Town meets mm-hmm. Arrival. We've already done the pitch work. It's, it's Congratulations, gonna be great. guys. It's going to be great. It's coming right after the book of Boba Fett. Uh, oh God, you said a Star Wars thing. And David, you passed the test. What was the code word from last week? I, I did. I, for, I, for someone uh, who doesn't follow you on Twitter. The, uh, the, the code word was Andy Cohen told me to take a drink. When I say this, Sith Holocron. <laughs> hey! uh, I, I would be lying if I told you I knew what a Sith Holocron was. I know what a Sith is, and I know what a hollow table is. Isn't the Sith Holocron the MacGuffin of... Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a MacGuffin. No, that's a Wayfinder. The Sith Holocron is the uh, triangle version of the Jedi's cubed Holocron. Wow. Mm. Anyway, it was on my desk, got it. I did did pass the test, which does mean, I think, as far as I understood the rules, that I get to monologue about the one thing we were told uh, that I couldn't talk about. That was what we were using to goad people into leaving us reviews. But now we're going to move on to something that Katie came up with going forward as a threat to our listeners who have been very good, very receptive, very eager to not hear me do what apparently I'm about to do. <laughs> uh, but uh, we're just going to do this once and for all. And then we're going to move on to a new topic, which is, which is great. Um, 
but I'm not really sure what I, what I need to say about Galaxy of Heroes. I'm more interested in a, in a 90 second conversation with Dave, maybe just sure. about um, just about, you know, the, the pursuit, almost an existential pursuit mm. of trying to get the galactic legends and like how I don't, how I don't know if I'm doing feels. that. Let me ask you this, David. Why do you yeah. want to get a galactic legend? Is it because, because you they're topped fucking out on all the unstoppable. Yeah, I mean, they certainly didn't talk about on all the other this stuff. Is why they but, created that advanced thirty seconds button. <laughs> but my my problem with playing this game was that I was targeting the characters that I thought were coolest, and I wasn't, especially when I was like really getting started, investing a lot of energy in the synergies between them, which is always a smart way to go. And I definitely wasn't paying attention to whatever rando ass characters you need to get into relic level five in order to get a fucking galactic legend. All these like Sith trooper, generic fucking sand trooper, whatever it is that you need. And now I'm starting to run into people in the meta game who have the, the meta game. Oh, Jesus and Christ. they're they're impossible. What is the meta? No, wait, no, no, no I didn't do that. I'm sorry. That. I'm sorry. And, uh, and and I chose to, even though I'm sort of on the cusp, I chose to play in hard mode in the last in the most recent and currently conquest. ongoing conquest and i'm on the fourth of the five uh sections of it but the boss of the fourth one is a galactic legend ray and like there's just not a chance i mean she just fucking demolishes everyone okay and so here's what you could do you could build to a galactic legend to be confident in that, into that meta uh or <laughs> You could start building the meta teams that counter Galactic Legends because Bad but Batch counters I, counters Ray right now. Bad Bad Batches, I mean Bad Batch, but those are the newly introduced people, and they're all. Let me quote Darth Vader for a second. No, <laughs> no. You'll, you'll get a full star Bad Batch even as, as a recently free to play before you Is get a Bad a Batch Galactic a, Legends a Ray character name. No, uh, it's like it's a, a group of it's characters a, for the yeah. currently airing Disney Plus animated show, like Jake and Saul because. Yeah, yeah, and I, they, they all seem like even like more low rent than the Mandalorian characters, and so I really cannot be fucked to collect them. But apparently, of course, that's what counteracts Black Legends Ray. Anyway, uh, I'm doing pretty well in this uh, current season of the Grand uh, Arena Championships, and I'm going to get a big payoff from this Galactic Conquest. So hopefully, at least I can get a commander. Well, we look forward to not anyway. learning about whether you're <laughs> uh, that or not. <laughs> thank you all for, for uh, joining us for Galaxy of Heroes Talk. Uh, that was at least 90 seconds. Uh, thanks for Dave for being my personal synergy on this podcast. Uh, together, we can take on any of the Galactic Legends. Uh, we do have one review, which I'm going to read real quick, and then I'm going to pass the baton to Katie to tell us what our new threat to all of you out there is. But J.D. Bangarang says, The Goat Pop Culture Podcast. How kind. This is a good one, folks. Nice and chill and easy on the ears. Don't overthink it and give it a try. Flawless thanks, review. Great review. Very yeah, helpful. Perfect. I like it. Uh, you, in any other week, you would have spared the entire world from having to listen to me talk about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. Katie, tell the listeners up there what they could be averting in the I future. I do think I revealed this last week, um, but I'm just going to say it again. Oh, you I did. Think- you did. I actually am now remembering what it yeah, is. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's going to be uh, the most boring parts of the royal family. Like, it's very important that you know. Oh, that yeah. It's not going to be about Harry and Meghan. It's not going to be about Princess Diana. It's going to be about, like... Mm-hmm. The queen, the bad batch of the royals. Uh, yeah, basically, like all of the most racist cousins are who you're going to learn about in detail. <laughs> I'm going to do some research. But that kind of sounds interesting. I think, I like, know. if you really wanted to put people off, you would be like, it's only fawning talk about how much you love the royal family. <laughs> Look, and Star Heroes. Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes was also a funny threat until I talked about C3PO for five minutes. So, really, you guys, listeners, you get to decide. Do you want to hear if Katie could really be boring about the royals? That's true. 
Uh, if so, don't leave a review. But if you fear Royals yep. or switching back to Galaxy of Heroes at a moment's notice, whatever you fear, it's behind the corner. If you don't, the history of the Queen's jewelry is very detailed, and I will share everything. Ooh. I know. Oh no! Yeah, that sounds okay. That sounds boring. Yeah. Leave us a review on iTunes. Welcome to Fighting in the War Room's Book Corner, where every once a year we, we all read maybe a book. I don't know. It's hard these days. Three of us have children. Who knows how anything's happened? I think in order to really get through a book, I just have to find one that I like and get into a rhythm of reading it. And I will make time for it like you do the things you really care about. But I, uh, I don't know why I wasn't champing at the bit for Kazuo Ishiguro's new novel, Clara in the Sun, even though I'm a big fan of his. And I've read most of his previous Which, stuff. What are his previous books, David? Uh, the Remains of the Day is probably the most famous one. Never Let Me Go is a popular one. Uh, something like The Buried Giant, which came out recently, was um, sort of the start of what I would characterize as what seems to be like a fairy tale, like, like a parable style uh, period for him. Maybe two books is too, too short for a period. Um, but he also recently won the Nobel Prize. This is his first novel he's written since then. Um, he writes a lot about uh, issues of memory and permanence, uh, typically from the, posi- the point of view of characters who are in a position of servitude. The Remains of the Day being an obvious example. The clones in Never Let Me Go who are grown in order to harvest their org- organs to the rich uh, people who paid for them. Um, just imagine poor Andrew Garfield and Carrie Mulligan. They're so sad. Um, sad uh and claire in the sun is uh certainly along those wistful lines i don't as i was saying a couple of seconds ago i don't know why i didn't race to grab it there was something there's something about the heightened nature of some of Ishiguro's work the buried giant being an example never let me go is a little bit more subtle and it only had that heightened element if you made the mistake of reading the library of congress categorization at the start which told you uh, what subjects it was about and how it would be filed. It was kind of ruinous. Um, but uh, Claire and the Sun is kind of like an AI story in the Steven Spielberg sense of the word. Um, it's about a, it's, even though it's set in this like art deco future where most technology is, it feels like the 1950s or 60s, but they are far more advanced than we are in a few areas, particularly in terms of artificial intelligence and robotics. Um, and it's a story told, again, very parable, parable-like uh, from the point of view of an artificial friend um, named Clara, who begins the story in a store, like an, I, like an Apple store of sorts for artificial friends. We don't really know what she looks like, only that she looks enough like a human girl that she could be sort of an emotional substitute for someone, but not so much like one that people can't readily identify her as an artificial friend in a crowd. Um, uh, Ishiguro is very good at omitting key details and leaving sort of uh, little porous areas for your imagination to fill in. Um, and she's adopted by a girl named Josie, who's a, from a wealthy family and has a, a difficult mother with an interesting backstory. Um, and Josie has an interesting predicament of her own. Um, and it's really just sort of about their relationship. It ends up being uh, circling themes that are familiar to readers of Ishiguro, but uh, you know, definitely about. Um, the, the nature of, of love, the nature of uh, the, the sort of unique 
um, irreducible human spirit, if, if, uh, if it's possible for a machine to perfectly emulate a person or if there is something intangible that uh, makes someone uniquely their own. Um, and of course, the old Ishiguro bugaboos about obsolescence um, and, and memory and all of these things and servitude. Um, you know, Clara is like part Haley Joel Osment and, uh, and part, you know, Anthony Hopkins in the remains of the day. Uh, to go by the movie version anyway, although that is one movie that does not come close to living up to the power and the nuance of the book. Um, anyway, I really, really, really enjoyed it. And uh, especially, I think it was extra crushing as a parent. Uh, it was uh, maybe very emotional to read. And uh, as a lot of, you know, that shouldn't really be a tip off as to what happens in the book, because many things make me very emotional these days. Um, Have you revisited and, AI since you've had a child? Well, it's funny you should ask because that is something that I have been meaning to do. Uh, its 20th anniversary is coming up very soon at the end of the month. And I've been, it seems like fertile ground for a think piece. I'm sure there will be some. And since I was a 15 year old boy named David when I saw it, <laughs> oh, David in the movie, quite 15. And now I'm a parent. And I always thought it was. You just also like, had that incident where you shoveled spinach into your mouth and you jammed well, all I, I don't like to talk about just that, but down, appara- yeah. apparently we all know that is what happens when I eat vegetables. It's bizarre, but it's true. All right, uh, and now, vegetables. as I really do, and now as a parent, um, I think that the ache and sadness of that movie would probably hit me in a different way that I would be morbidly curious to. See for myself, not that I haven't seen it in the last 20 years, but I don't think I've actually sat down and watched the whole thing, some of which is so vividly imprinted in my mind um, since my son was born. Uh, so I'm trying to find the time amidst other things to give that a world, certainly on my mind in regard to Claire and the Sun, uh, a book that I, I highly recommend if uh, any of what I said appeals to you. And uh, that is right on the back of reading The Vanishing Half, which I we did. We last time we did a book podcast. segment, we talked about The Vanishing um, Half. Two books in a row. Wow. I greatly enjoyed. I am impressed. And now I'm, don't be, I'm just like happy that I've, like I stopped reading so many books during the pandemic. Not that I wasn't doing that before, but really my tolerance for things that I, like, and books that are beloved and critically acclaimed <laughs> classics and, and more recent fiction and, and like nonfiction, even books that I was enjoying, I just really couldn't get through. And so to find something in, the vanishing half that broke that seal and got me to actually get to the last page it was a breakthrough. And now I'm, I'm You're on a roll. reading a friend lend me uh, Melissa Broder's milk I'm bed. I'm fascinated uh, all the time in the world to read and play books. Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. Time and I, I, do all these movies and, and get 10,000 steps a day. I think time. is something you're always bragging about. I've started swimming at the YMCA. Oh I'm a swimmer. How are you? Where is this time? Do you do all you day? Time? You have a child. <laughs> um, I. I don't do any of this stuff very well, which is part of it. Uh, and these books are being read slowly and uh, I'm basically wasting away and I don't sleep. And yeah, what uh, hours I, of the day do you read? Are you optimized to read? Because I, I have trouble reading at night. I, yeah, I, I, I fall I have asleep. Since middle school, I always oh, fall asleep. Reading at night is the only time I can read. If I did fall asleep reading, I would consider that a bonus. Um, but I, I read, you know, I'll read like 20 or 30 minutes um, at, at night and uh, I'm not reading these books very quickly. I mean, we, we talked about The Vanishing Half a long time ago, and that was the most recent book I'd read. Um, but, they, you know, it comes in spurts. You you get excited about something, and you make the time yeah. for it. But I don't sleep a lot, and uh, Asa has been pretty low maintenance, but I think that's starting to change. It is this week. He's got a fee. He's got like a 
and he was sent home from school sick today and he was crying up until the minute we started recording. So who knows what the future holds? <laughs> uh, maybe I am being greedy by trying to read another book. No, you get it in while you can. <laughs> uh, but uh, Katie, I heard a rumor. Yeah. I mean, I read him several books or the same books several yeah. times. No, are we kind of Pete the Cat books? I'm <laughs> doing great on Pete the Cat. <laughs> God, oh, these, these fucking, like, for the parents out there, these lovery boxes of toys that they sent at the perfect time in your child's development, this like subscription service. The toys are amazing, but the photo books they send are just like, he's obsessed with them. He's so much more interested in the pictures of real people doing these activities. That he is in illustrated characters, even though he likes those too. And then the way we read them, because some he of those words, drama. he doesn't like this cartoon yeah. shit that most <laughs> it's American like, kids read. Like, he just loves B, people and role B drama. He gets a checkup, right? Like B gets a checkup, and it says in bright yellow letters, like Doctor Cooper is here. And so every time we get to that page, you go, Doctor Cooper is here, and Asa just starts cackling, and then he just keeps flipping back to that page over and over and over because he enjoys the reaction. These it's moments. the best. But Katie, I heard a rumor that you read a book. Uh, or, or patches you read a book. Someone Actually, out I there did in read the a book. Also read I realized a book. I did want to bring up a book that I have I read a while ago, but is now out. I got to read it early, which is very nice. Um, it's called One Last Stop, and it's by Casey McQuiston, who wrote Red, Right, and Royal Blue, which got caught up in a weird book world semi cancellation last week, which doesn't have anything to do oh, with hasn't? her new book. So I'm just not going to get into that. Semi cancellation. Um, <clears throat> she had to change some words. Change some words in Red, White, and Royal Blue, which is not what we're here to talk about because of her new book. Is called One Last Stop, and it is about a young uh, Gen Z person living in New York City who meets a woman on the subway who turns out to be a time traveler from the 70s who's been trapped on the train. I, oh, God, which train is it? Love I can't that. believe I don't remember the name of the subway line because it's such a big part of it. I'm going to say our train because that was, I think it's the cute train because um, they're like out in Kensington. Um, and then there's a kind of a love story and also trying to figure out how to get this person unstuck from time. It has like little dollops of like queer history, like talking about this woman named Jane who grew up in san francisco the child of chinese immigrants and she lived in new orleans and it's connected to like a real life tragedy with the gay community in new orleans and you know all this she's she's stuck on she's the stuck subway. on the q train yes yeah, she cannot she never leave the train she's like not really sure how long she's been there and she's slowly regaining her memories to figure out how to get back out um and then there's mm. like it, and as the same in red white and blue, royal blue there's this nice cast of supporting characters and all very funny and charming it'll make you want to go to a big sweaty apartment party um, with all of your other 25 year old friends uh so i enjoyed it a lot it's out now read it that's all Ooh, patches you also read a book <laughs> yeah i've been uh i do not have much time i am not as diligent as, as david because i fall asleep at night when i try and read mm-hmm. books and my days are taken up by you're one of those so weirdos who sleeps for like more than five hours a night oh yeah i'm a good sleeper <laughs> and, like, i get, it, I get like sleep chronically depressed because their brain doesn't produce enough but then it's not good if you have kids who are like waking up and you're supposed to like jump into action because then i get a little groggy but here's my point my kid is starting to play by themselves a little bit and that means i can get in some short spurts of reading and the perfect thing if you were like this if you need something to to just plow through and have a really good time with i want to recommend the books by john swartzwelder the frank burley series john swartzwelder is a simpsons writer he recently got a big article in the new yorker um by someone who i revere this guy mike Sachs, who i've become very uh, good pals with over Wait, the really? years yeah he works with me we're, yeah we're, i know you guys yeah, are I know. We're very fair but uh yeah we, well i mean we we are acquaintances uh because i adore mike's books on comedy um god uh, uh killing a dead frog i think is is one of them he's done a few books where he just interviews comedy directors or comedy writers about how they their creative process and and how they make jokes and you'd think explaining that 
could be really terrible, but Mike is a professional and he makes it really fun. Um, and Mike got the, the interview of a lifetime, I would say, with uh, with John, who is a reclusive uh, writer type who does never, never, ever wants to do press, just wants to write Simpsons episodes and write these books, which he has been doing for the last 16 years. Um, the first one was The Time Machine Did It. Start there. Pick up The Time Machine Did It. Uh, it is, I think, like maybe 200 pages. Uh, there, I guess they might be more novella. I don't know where we draw the line between novella and no- novel. Um, but they are absurdist, hysterical, noir novels, kind of. Some of them are fantasy, some of them are sci-fi. Time Machine did it is uh, clearly genre-y in many ways. Um, Frank Burley, the main character, the private eye, an idiot. Uh, just a wonderful... It's joke, 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 joke. Every line is funny and John Swartzwelder is a genius, and I wasn't surprised that after Mike's profile in New Yorker, all of his books were like hard to get on uh, Amazon and such, but now you can, and I would definitely pick them up. They are unassuming little books and um, just so funny. Really, really, really good stuff. So if you need something that's short and you could read a chapter or two in like five minutes when you have a second and want to enjoy life pick up these books they're really good uh before we end dave what's your relationship to books to this point do you wish you were reading more do you not care if you're not reading (laughs) do you know how to read so here's what i i'm gonna be as honest as i can with everybody without um fucking up anything that i can't talk about yet (laughs) um my Marvel book changed from an oral history to a history which suddenly meant a lot of my research reading was just like fucking wrong so here's a list of things that I've been digesting over the past month. Uh, Comic Wars, Marvel's Battle for Survival by Dan Revive. Uh, Marvel's Comics, The Unturned Story by Sean Howe, one of my favorite. Uh, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee by Abraham Reisman, great. Robert Iger's The Ride of a Lifetime, just about Disney stuff. Uh, Matthew Alford's Real Power, about how the American military sort of like pushes things uh, on people. Disney Wars by i believe his name's james stewart and uh pictures uh at a revolution by mark harris uh, i'm writing history about out, marvel and movies. can't wait to find out how guess who's coming to dinner uh connects with marvel cinematic universe um it's just about trying to write good histories man i had like real good. shoved in things i had shoved in things like um meet me in the bathroom and the um CAA oral history and the Saturday Night Live oral history and I tried to like learn that format and that was great until that wasn't what we were doing anymore so I was like let's pick some entertainment histories and fucking read them so yes I'm reading all of those things I can't necessarily recommend them to you because my needs are completely different than yours listener Uh, but you know in October 2022 you just read my book that will include the best pieces of all these other books and more Lights up on Washington Heights, up at the break of day, I wake up and I got this little punk I gotta chase away. Pop the grade at the crack of dawn, sing while I wipe down the awning. Hey y'all, good morning. Ice cold feet agua, paricha, china, cherry, strawberry, and just for today, um, well, I, got- I went to the movie theater over the weekend, and I don't remember when we decided we're gonna stop saying it's pandemic check-in. Because it felt like we gave up on it, we'll just forever be a pandemic check-in. But I do remember there being something about us going back to movie theaters in the rules there dave is it time to dissipate you're saying it's the last pandemic i don't know is it dave what's the new rule do we have one uh i don't think we have one we were either gonna wait till someone medically said the pandemic is over which gets a lot fuzzier now 
Uh, or I think before we had all been back to theaters. Oh, well, definitely we were all going to be oh. back to it at some point. So, Dave, when are you going to go to the movie theater? What's going to get you there? I don't know, man. It might be F9 at this mm. point. I mean, I would love to see Black Widow in the theaters, and maybe I will if I have a good F9 experience, but I also don't have to. Or I like my couch. Uh, well, you can watch In the Heights on your couch, or you can do what I did and go see it in your local movie theater, uh, where it was way more crap packed than I expected. Like, it was not completely full, but, like, a good number of people they were serving like drinks and popcorn in the seats people were laughing and they clapped when limo and miranda came on beforehand and said like welcome back to the movie theaters also there's that ben diesel thing where he was like the movies we all love the movies, the movies. The movies. and i had like heard people talking about that as a meme and then i saw it for myself and i was like ah i get it i did not realize until like yesterday that that wasn't that that SNL parody was not just made up whole cloth. It was actually making fun of something. Uh, yeah, and it and In the Heights is not a universal movie, so I don't know if it's like in every movie theater in America right now. I don't. Um, I don't... Vin doesn't care about studios. You know, it's this is bigger yeah, than it's, studios. It's about this is the about movies. the movies. Um, so I saw In the Heights, which I had already seen at home. Um, as had a lot of uh, professional writers who got screeners in advance, and have a lot of people who watch on HBO Max. But let me tell you, saw in a movie theater. I got emotional and i was so happy to be seeing things on a big screen and i was even happy to be seeing the dear evan hansen trailer on a big screen which was a a jarring experience um i don't know man like i feel like we've been talking about it for weeks and i guess i should set up the plot of in the heights is that what we want me to do sure musical do you want to do it for people who have never seen can you do it in well while rap rhyming Uh, and walking through my bodega uh, no, it was Limo and Miranda's first Broadway show before Hamilton. He wrote it at Wesleyan, a college that I went to, but not at the same time as him. Um, and it is. I mean, I went to that Wesleyan. I didn't like enroll or anything. I mean, he graduated <laughs> like, I, in the spring. I, I started in the fall. So I'm just saying, you know, anyone can go to sure, Wesleyan. Set, just miss like, that Miranda. Everyone can set foot on the campus of Wesleyan. Um, and it's about a block in Washington Heights. I, I think the show was set over a single day or over two days. The movie takes place over a slightly compressed period of time. Uh, in the original show, Lin-Manuel Miranda played the character of Uznavi, who owns the bodega, and he's kind of the narrator of the show and is the centerpiece to which, which all these other people's lives flow. You've got these, like, he's got a love interest, and there's this other couple who have this love interest thing going on. There's Abuela Claudia, who's, like, the mother figure of it. Um, it's about people, like, getting pushed out by gentrification and kind of divisions within the community and people trying to pursue their dreams and figuring out how to get out of the neighborhood. It's about people getting pushed out by gentrification. Yeah, like I mean, there's two mm-hmm. different businesses Who's that closed down. Out? The hair salon, the beauty all salon. All the businesses yeah. close at the end Except of the, the musical. All the fashion. businesses close. Well, I mean, all the businesses close, but they're selling to each other. They're not the selling. Hair salon's it's not because out. of gentrification. The hair got, got pushed out. They said other clients okay. are in the Bronx. And the dry cleaner next I, door. I, just, I- I guess you're right. It, it, guess it is. Right. It is very much about. Gender. I didn't think that the movie successfully uh, delivered on that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, we, could, we could debate that. Sorry, I'm, uh, I'm getting definitely. to the critical whoa. part already. But I yeah, guess yeah. yes, there is gentrification in the movie technically. Yes. Um. So the movie is directed by John Chu, who directed uh, two Step Up movies, I think, as well as Crazy Rich Asians. He has a strong background in musicals, and I think in the Heights as a story is like pretty straightforward there are definitely some character motivations where you're like okay i I believe that you want that because you're telling me you want that i'm just not going to investigate it further um but then every musical number is a complete thrill it is so exciting if you like i mean i love musicals and so i think i'm extra in the tank for it but just watching a bunch of people like dancing in a fire hydrant or with sprinklers attached to their feet while they break dance or like spinning on inner tubes in the pool like in you know the 96,000 song in the pool being like the showstopper of all showstoppers 
Um, it brings me a joy that is unmatched by any other kind of movie. And I think was heightened by seeing it on a big screen and being fully enveloped in it. I was so thrilled to in be able heightened. to kind of live in that world for a while. And I hope other people are too, even though apparently not enough people went to see it over the weekend. I, I mean, it, it really is well. reflective of how I, I must live in a little bubble. Um, politically, I, I tend yeah. not to mind, but in this sense, you know, it, I would have told you, I'm sure we said we were intimated as much on this podcast that in the Heights seemed poised to be a massive hit. I wasn't following the tracking. I don't know how accurate tracking is these days, um, especially for a movie that is also playing on HBO Max. But it just seemed like the movie that everyone was talking about and waiting for. And I was genuinely shocked that it underperformed as much as it did. Well, I think a um, lot of people watched it on HBO Max. I was at the doctor's office on a Thursday before the movie came out. Well, actually it came out on HBO Max on a Thursday. Uh, and all the ladies at the they did release like, it wait, it's coming on out on HBO, HBO Max. Max today? Oh, I can't wait to go home and see it. Like, I'm going to watch it on HBO Max. How do I get HBO Max? I got to watch this movie. And they were really excited for In the Heights. It was amazing to hear people being like excited for a movie again out in the wild. But they were excited to see it on HBO Max. Yeah, well, because people are out. It's just like me and reading books, right? Like people are out of the habit of going to the theater, even if they're itching to leave the house and, and have something to do. Um, and I saw some sentiments on the Internet that I could not possibly disagree with more about not not uh, people in our line of work anyway, not politely respectfully understandably preaching to the to the masses that they go and see this movie on the big screen if they can because they are missing out on the experience so the full experience anyway if they watch it at home um i know that option it should go without saying it should always go without saying we're all hypersensitive these days is not always available to everyone that was true before the days of streaming it will be true for as long as theaters exist and really in regards to all media but um man i mean like I I had the same experience Katie did, even seeing it in a in a screening room where I was one of like three people. I mean, I could just it, it, the movie filled in the rest of the room, and I felt all of that same hairs in the back of your neck charge that you get. That's sort of and the musical is really the perfect mechanism to bring that love of the movies back to the theaters because there is that slightly embarrassed quality to surrendering to it and to letting it work on you. Um, particularly a music is guy a musical is guileless as in the heights yeah. uh that was directed by somebody who was willing to sort of own that element of it and not push back against the Lynn Manuel Miranda of it all. Um and really just sort of embrace it and make it super colorful and have a song that, you know, is a big old Busby Berkeley tribute and um, you know, really have the have the characters owning the fact they're in a musical uh show and or a movie rather and um Man, it's just like, I thought it was delightful. I've been watching since it was on HBO Max. I've been watching just like the first 11 minutes of it two or three times, which just give me a real charge. Oh, yeah. that I I've look been forward to doing that. Missing. Um, and those may not even be the highlight of the movie, even if it's, you know, some of the shots there feel like they really sort of immediately tap into why this movie worked for me so well. I'm thinking of the, the shot of um, the people, like dozens of people dancing on the sidewalk is reflected in the window of Usnavi's bodega and just like how much that shot sort of informs you in terms of the energy of the of the neighborhood and the street but also uh Usnavi's relationship to it his dynamic with his own uh people's place his idea of home I mean like all of these things are really beautifully sublimated in some of these moments that are not just done for spectacle that are actually sort of pared down in a way um and really it's just like 
fucking one of the things that still bums me out about how this movie performed, even though we know that musicals can have long legs and the story of In the Heights is a financial endeavor is the not over. Showman uh, it's just forever. That, that, yeah, exactly. But like this movie just like mints movie stars every five minutes. I mean, it's or at least it should. Uh, by all rights, these people should be household names. I mean, Anthony Ramos, I can't remember the last time I saw someone who was that overwhelmingly likable in a movie. And I saw a friend of mine complaining that he was sort of like nerdy or twerpy and that Vanessa, um, who is played by um, someone, what's her name? Melissa Barrera. She's kind of, she was more of a fantastic. She hasn't been in much Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, she was in some telenovelas, I think, but she's, like just radiant off the screen. And then Corey Hawkins is just like, holy shit. Yeah, he's holy like, shit. Is time, Corey Hawkins a star? Like every time Tom he walks Hanks, on the man, screen. That's, yeah. The I don't get the Tom Hanks comparison you keep making. I, I want you to, to expand on this. I, I don't see it. Yeah, I just I'm think not sure, he, I'm not sure Tom Hanks would be I, my go-to reference. See, I, just think he has either, this, I, I think he has this charm where he could be easily underestimated. He could be like an action guy, but I think he's like a rom-com guy. I think he's uh, just a chill, normal dad guy. And like, even as a young man, I don't know, he might, might be much older than I realize. But um, yeah, I just think he's every man. I think we, we give that to Tom Hanks easily because he fits a certain cookie cutter American mold. But I think Corey Hawkins is also like America. Every Corey man. Hawkins is 32. That's what I, So he's, uh, he's okay. younger than us. So he's, he's got yeah, a long he's doing career. Uh, he just fucking rules from the moment he walks into that bodega i was like i mean i've seen him in things before but like it's just i've seen anthony rambo i saw anthony Ramos on stage i mean like uh you know humble brag <laughs> um i actually i saw in the heights in in theater i know he wasn't in the broadway production of that but i saw in the heights way back when in theaters and i uh and i do not remember enjoying it you know a fraction as much as i love the movie um but uh man i mean just like these these and then you add like jimmy smith's good morning Navi. <laughs> i mean it's just like the stuff that dreams are made of uh and this is all within the first couple of minutes of the movie i mean i i have my quibbles as i wrote about at length in my review on IndieWire. i mean i i really i don't think that the framing devices even though i understand it i think i see the ration the ration the framing device telling the story of him each telling the story on the backdrop of the dominican public um, in the way that it's executed, it felt very clumsy to me, and there's some choices that left me. It kind of my felt head. like the uh, ending of Contact, where they had gone sure, to space yeah. or something, and they were in <laughs> well, sort of surreal that just, dimension. That that scene, uh, from what I understood from the press notes, was actually filmed in Long Island. So mm. there you go. Wow. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, just uh, Photoshop some palm trees in there. We'll call it a day. Yeah, <laughs> Warner Brothers was not about to shell out for a flight to the Dominican Republic. Uh, in this, of all films, that it would seem justified. I guess they decided it wasn't worth it. But uh, and you know there there's some things that felt a little hand-fisted. The new plot they've written in about um, the dreamers, I thought, was actually really touching. But the way that it's introduced, particularly in the protest scene, which lasts for lasts for seconds. I mean, this is not a huge issue, but it's just like John. Of all the things, John M. Chu was born to direct, and and brilliantly with his pop sensibilities, a believable protest scene is not one of yeah. them. Yeah. Um, and I was just, was just like, wow, this feels plastic. But, uh, you know, and In the Heights is a messy musical. It's the plot is not very focused. It is kind of a sketch of a point in time, of a place, um, of the various people and, and their, I, you know, often contradictory ideas of home and what this Washington Heights means to them. But I thought the movie was able to tie it together well enough in terms of just like your affection for the characters and their affection for each other. 
uh, and the music is maybe not as um, not as memorable as some of the music from like Hamilton, which is a high bar. Uh, but this movie just like whatever, I can't, you know, corny ass or not. It literally I makes your heart sore, which is like not like put it, put it on a poster and shame Wait, me. To death. It literally. I mean, that's how it feels. I feel like I feel yeah, the inside of yeah. my chest lifting up when I'm watching the huh. best scenes in this movie. Wow. Jesus. Patches you hate in the heights? No, I'm pretty just mad. <laughs> I watched. I'm it right home. there with you, Patches. This is a C it. C plus movie. Yeah, yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> no. Now I saw it on uh, HBO Max, where it was meant to be seen. Oh, I'm doing that as, too. The, as oh. the uh, director intended. Wow. And um, yeah, I w- I didn't know the show at all. Uh, people know my relationship to Hamilton. That was more of a waiting you for wrote a it. moment to see it. I wrote it. <laughs> I um, thought it was a bit. So I thought it was just a you know, uh, see how long you could take. Yeah. It wasn't a bit. I wanted to see it on stage or I wanted to see people put it up and I settled for Disney Plus and um, did not have a chance to see In the Heights on, on Broadway and didn't know when I would. And I, I, yeah, Can you I, remind like, us, I never really went back to listen to the album. Of how you felt about Hamilton? I really liked Hamilton. Um, but uh, interestingly enough, I think both Hamilton and In the Heights have kind of flaccid second acts like and a lot of musicals actually suffer from this every musical it's hard to live up to it's hard to live up to your first act it's like a a flaw with the media on some level and um and and in the heights is is no different i just don't think i was taken by much of the music or much of the performance there's so many characters there's so many storylines that no one really i didn't really become invested in any one person i thought the, the female characters were like really underwritten and boring um and again, Anthony Ramos and Corey Hawkins are kind of like running circles around these two actresses, I think. And but that more is more of a script thing. I also had here's my weird problem with the movie. And I'm, I, clearly you guys did not feel this way, but I'm I'm sure maybe some of our listeners did, which is like or maybe Dave will be uh, here, uh, which is that they're like the movie is caught in a limbo of bet- between um or like it, it, uh, between its own artifice in some ways that like they shot on the streets of Washington Heights, right? Like a lot of this is shot on location in New York. It mm-hmm. seems like uh, it absolutely was. And um, and then you have scenes that are clearly like more dreamlike the Bugsy Berkeley uh, pool scene. Now that's a real pool, obviously, but there's really heightened elements to it. The whole all the dancing and stuff. But then you also have scenes that are just like in outer space it's dream sequence they're dancing on a side of a building and we're changing Patches, you're angles confusing this with f9 which you just came back from <laughs> yeah they're they're swinging cars between mountains and such. <laughs> it's a, uh, they defy the laws of physics i just felt like are you gonna pick a lane here is this gonna be a musical you're shooting on the streets of new york and where the, the music is heightening it or are you going yeah. to stage la la land like like i almost wanted the whole movie to be shot in a back lot to make the artifice no feel cohesive yeah, I don't... it makes no sense it makes total sense I don't know. It's not cohesive. Also, like your idea of like railing against a musical for being particularly a musical that's that is grounded in in the dreams of its very grounded characters. But it doesn't segue between dreams. It doesn't have dream logic. It's not using that language in particular places. It's not dreaming as an extension of song. It's there's going to be songs here when when they are dancing along the side of the building. That's not. Yes, but I'm saying that takes that happens like once and it's. And it's not replicated. No, we there's don't the have dream uh, there's Pasquante Faye, which is an entire like dream sequence. But there's also, I mean, this is a movie where he walks down the street and he spins the the sewer grates like turnstiles, and uh, that's one of a million little details where 
the heightened reality or incorporated. I felt like, felt like you needed to pick a lane. A you needed to either be grounded on the streets of New York or be in Dream Logic. You can't do both. I yeah, don't even have I a felt problem like it, with the yeah. directing. I don't know if like the like dancing on the side of the building, fucking beautiful. Love everything about that sequence. Yeah, it I really makes it the characters CG. come together. But the it's reason the I felt that, the, 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 I mean, there's a lot of bad CG in this movie. Like that, but the end of the pool. There's a lot of bad CG in every in just about every movie that employs CG. <laughs> anyway, the, the uh, point being, the reason I, I thought back on that why it hits so hard is they've cut Benny's story from this movie. Yeah, entirely. Benny. Benny suffers. And like Corey Hawkins is so good. And then it gets to this point where it's like, Kevin likes him now? Like, in this movie, Kevin likes Benny, which means I don't even know. What, there's even not even really a point where he concretely says he wants to take over the shop until after the shop's been sold. It's just made a lot of adaptation choices that seemed like it wanted to update it, when really what I think is they should have boiled down what they had yeah, to like a yeah. cool core. Like, because then you all, lose Nina. I mean, by losing Benny's story, it feels like you also, like, Nina shows up, she's back from college, and then I feel like they well, disappear they also, from the movie for a good they, 30, 40 minutes. They changed Nina's backstory to be, like, more modern about why she didn't like Stanford. It's not that she had to work multiple jobs to, like, make things work. It's that, that it's she not was, a true Ivy. No. She was searched by, well, no, it's the same problem with the dot. It's uh, not like dream- it's Wesley or something. <laughs> not Wesley. Not. It's the same kid with like the dreamer stuff and the the ethnic makeup of Washington Heights. These are all things that were true to Lin Manuel Miranda and felt very true to the stage show when it opened. You can't then transplant that to 2021 and not have these weird anachronisms where it's just like I feel weird now about the makeup and the just all all Latinx people are the same. I feel weird this Mexican actress cast as a Dominican in this, where I wouldn't if it had just been like a movie that was obviously dreamlike or whatever Patches was talking about. But it seems like it wanted to, it did, the Sage Show did a really good job of representing a community, of representing the ideas of dreams, of also, you know, who told your story for take yeah. one. Uh, I think the show does a really good job on that. And here it seems like they thought they needed to update it to wink at like a modern audience. It's like the Dreamers. Mm. It's a different, uh, it's like the protest scene. It's a different uh, Nina storyline. And like adding in uh, Chris What's-His-Face to play the Mr. Softy guy just so Jackson. him and Jackson. Miranda could be in the show. I think so number, like, it's like numbers coconut. in the show, that, that Piragua number. No, 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 no. It is, but just all these little things that are adding, <laughs> it takes me out of the movie because the story... It was a good machine, and it had a lot of family drama with, like, uh, Kevin and Nina's whole, like, family, and it sort of felt like Uznavi wasn't the center. He was part of this, like, big tapestry. But, like, adding the border, or the end stories, and him narrating it, and, like, skipping over the whatever 10 million stories song and just telling the U.S. Navy joke like it's a joke, it's devaluing what was there before. So what you have is the best parts of In the Heights occasionally raised to meet John Chu's directing, and he's out there giving it his like fucking all. He's like, let's animate this scene where they're walking down the street and they can do pantomimes. Let's animate the pantomimes. Let's make a fabric fly off the like these tall buildings and like float in the air. Like I'm, I'm just in- rule the fabric plays the in the air illustrations do not. Oh, I disagree. I, mean, I like I like them both. <laughs> I like all those things because it's swinging for the fences the way a stage show would have to swing for the fences for each number, which I get, but it is just very fucking spotty because 
all this connective tissue has been removed and replaced like it's interchangeable, and I don't think it is. I, I think the difference yeah. of when uh, Abuelita tells the audience that she has the number, the lottery ticket versus here, him having finding it and shifting a whole bunch of stuff to the home. Uh, it's like right before Pacenza Faye, she's sitting there and she's watching the family be happy. That's supposed to take place after a huge argument. But now that we don't have the Rosario family and Benny like like clashing off of each other, it's like, oh, she was happy and she passed away happy, which is like great. I love it. But that's not the reality of this gigantic I did not family. Get- I did not get the feeling from Paciente Faye, you know, regardless of its context in the movie, but that it was at a moment of happiness. This is a song that like is meditating on satisfaction. I mean, it's such a tortured right. song. The, the song is great, uh, and, and the I think perform- it creates its own because she made it creates it. its own context. Like I didn't like I don't know if I, I don't remember the musical, the stage show well enough to to use it as a point of comparison. But I don't remember watching the movie and thinking like. Oh, like everything is rosy in in the situation. I mean, it feels like it comes at a very fraught time still, and that it's sort of her her death in the song here destabilizes any feelings of permanence and delusions that Usnavi might have, of, or any character might it, have, of keeping things as they are. It works excellently as a hard reset, but what it is, is it's papering over the Rosario's fight with Benny that then Benny takes to the club, and it just makes the club thing all jealousy dancing which i get is musical i also love that sequence <laughs> but it has to then like hard reboot with pisencia Faye, which is supposed to end also with her uh displaying the fucking ticket it's just uh i get why they tried to reshuffle and i get you're doing an adaptation you have to make it be something i just think it's not a successful adaptation because they kick too many cornerstones out of it no i like the way that they move they have a oil cloud just two big moments together like they let her be a presence in the movie mm. and they have these nice scenes like where you kind of i don't think you lose her importance as a character by having paciencia Faye come later and then it works as the emotional fulcrum of the movie the the problem i have structure wise is that after that you have this big emotional like moment with her and then you get to where it's resolving on the plot lines and you're like okay all right like i i know wait we're gonna we got to get everybody wrapped up and then you're kind of flagging and then Carnival de Mario comes up, which is a great musical number and it brings the energy back, even though it's pretty pointless. Like I think this is the sagging. Well, it that, also references plot points that we don't see. Like what? It's like, oh, and Benny and Nina slept together. And I was like, they kept that in, but they didn't shoot the like I don't I don't get it, guys. I, I think we're just it. supposed to be implied that they slept together. Yes. Yeah. I, mean, I mean by, I, hug, I by hugging that, they uh... <laughs> I think that bringing the energy back up is the that it serves and and that's all well and good and it gives this last communal experience where everyone from the neighborhood all these disparate people uh in the films and you know i stress relatively diverse uh group of the latinx community up there yeah but the uh but i will say that the thing that bothered me and i guess we're in spoiler territory here i mean whatever musicals are really tough to spoil um and uh the movie is not publicly available but uh I couldn't, the thing, I mean, I do, I do, I do hear a lot of the complaints about the structural issues of the movie. A lot of that I just sort of waved off because every musical, particularly those adapted from Broadway shows, I find lags in the second half. And I remember being a lot more deadened by the second half of the stage show than I was by the movie. But uh, the decision to casually reveal that that girl is Usnavi's daughter halfway through or two-thirds of the way through the framing device rather than save it at the end 
where it would have been like a cute, maybe somewhat eye rolly button baffled me. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. And I, I like, you know, when you're talking about these emotional through lines and sort of the waves that you're riding over the movie, I think that kind of reveal, which seems like a quibble might have a effect that's hard to measure. That's greater. Um, that sort of just, you know, resonates with your, how you're riding the waves. Um, I don't know, but I just could not make heads or tails of that decision. Yeah, I, as far as the structure goes, I mean, as we have said, I think there are just really successful scenes. The pool scene is really dazzling, and um, the abuela sequence is really you dazzling. You can't just do and, it's their successful scenes because I love the I like love the characters all the way through. I'm with them. I'm feeling for I them. I thought I so, was talking like, about my perspective. You're not. I don't care about the characters. <laughs> I don't care about any of the characters. Right? As I was saying in the beginning, I'm like. What is this movie about? Is it about gentrification in the in Washington Heights? Is it about like I don't know? There's just so many things that it's about, and none of the characters have their moments. I almost wanted it to be like I know that Lin Manuel Miranda reveres Sondheim, and there are many Sondheim musicals that are just like this person's story, this person's story, this person's story. I think this would have been a more successful story if it had like contained bits that felt like this person's path and this like. I love the scene in the salon, that musical, when they're packing up and they're getting ready to go. But, like, who are those characters? I don't care about them at all. They get totally lost in the movie. And they gawk and stand in the background of so many scenes and make weird faces. It's a very strange choice uh, for the, that, th- that. I mean, if you got problems movie. with the Greek chorus patches, take it up. They're not the, but they're barely the Greek chorus because they, you can't be the Greek chorus and be have your own plot line. I don't That's think. part of the problem with the movie. It doesn't yeah. necessarily know it's a movie all take- the time. Pick some sort of lane, like make a choice about the structure. The structure is so wishy-washy that I don't think any issue is all no, that no, no, interesting. No, no. And I don't think any characters all that they interesting. They did make choices. They were the wrong choices, but they're <laughs> confident okay. choices and they're there. So I want yeah. to give them credit uh, for that. But also as a counterpoint, this movie's wonderful. Yeah. It made me so yeah. happy. Um, I can't wait to continue. I'm so happy that it's on, of all the streaming platforms that it had to be on, had to be on one of them as, as devastated as I was by the, uh, box office receipts and so many people choosing to watch it at home um, when the option was available to them to go to the theaters. Uh, the fact that it's going to be in the HBO rotation as a cable junkie, as I've described myself on the podcast before, the fact that it's just going to show up on the one premium cable package that I get means that I will just come into it at various junctures uh, for the next several years. And that's a beautiful way to uh, re-experience this movie. Yeah. Um, I, it brought me a lot of joy. Uh, I'm going to be watching these actors for a long time to come. That's true. I'm already hooked. I'm watching. Uh, I never watched the first three seasons of In Treatment, but just watching Anthony Ramos in the current <laughs> one with Duba has been a treat and seeing him do something, you know, completely uh, different from, from Usnavi. I think um, this movie could have been hotter. Like the lights go out. There's a blackout because of the heat, but it doesn't feel like very hot, does it? No, the lights go out because everyone on screen is so fucking hot. They're not hot enough. Oh, well, they're hot. hot. Uh, I I need some more temperature. Mileage will vary, but more sweat. uh, The movie could have been much sweaty. uh, Yeah, really, what I hear when you say that is why weren't more people moist in this movie? I'm fine with it. You want more heat? You just want the old men from Do the Right Thing to sit against a red wall and complain about the heat. Ooh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I could have used that. I'm just like, get out there with the spray bottles and squirt these people. I'm not okay. Um, I, <laughs> uh, yeah, listen, uh, in the heights, day in court has come. 
everyone go out there and judge Here's themselves. the thing we we've learned I think definitively in our What's tie that? in our tie vote fighting in the war room thing here. If you are vaccinated and if you feel comfortable, go see a movie in the theaters. It apparently yeah. shines everything to joyous heartlifting experiences. <laughs> right. Um uh, yeah, it doesn't hurt. Uh, I'm gonna go see Fast Nine. Like, go to the movies. Back. You might find you like it. Yeah, we're all gonna um, like Fast Nine because we're all gonna have seen it in the theaters. Movies, movie, the movie. Uh, if only, if only it worked that way, Dave. If only. <laughs> but yeah, please go to the movies. That does it for this week's show. Uh, you guys will be back next, back next week. I'll be gone. Uh, the topic of the day is Sweet Tooth, which most of what I know about it is that a promoted tweet from Robert Downey Jr. keeps showing up for me and telling me about how great it is. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. I saw it so That's many times. That's all I know. What is he, what is he uh, saying? He's he says saying it's 100% fresh. It's certified <laughs> fresh. Oh. Uh, so you guys are going to talk about it, so everyone should watch it. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. I'm producing another podcast called Galaxy Brains that I'm recommending to people. We had a very good episode with Amy Nicholson of the Unspooled podcast. I'm on Quiet Place too the other day, and it was uh, speaking of her parents. Just uh, she's anti kit so it was a very fun episode. I was going to say, are you about discussed. to announce that Amy Nicholson is pregnant? No, I'm <laughs> definitely not. But uh, Amy Nicholson, she may be anti kit but she sent Asa. Uh, one of He's very sweet. the great Ace of Toys of all time, which is uh, our Ace's little plush smiling face hugger, Facey Witter, uh, who well, we love dearly. She is a brilliant person and she may be anti kid, but she is pro horror and pro the themes of family. And they talked about it in Galaxy Brains. It was a phenomenal conversation, I thought. But uh, yeah, you can listen to that or you can listen to old episodes of Fighting in the War Room on fightingintheworroom.com, where we have all the archives. 300 some episodes holy shit uh, so if you got some free time and you don't want to read fucking books go listen to Fighting in the World uh, I'm David Ehrlich I'm Sydney Punk Critic for IndieWire you can find me on Twitter and uh, on IndieWire this week where I'll be writing about I guess the stragglers the Tribeca Film Festival and maybe more pertinently to people out there Pixar's Luca which uh, I think at this point we should talk about that say, next week too but I enjoyed um, I also it's like uh, it's like what if Pixar tried to make a Studio Ghibli movie set in an Italian town called Porto Rosso? <laughs> and they kind of did. And apparently there is a town on the Adriatic Sea called Porto Rosso, but uh, uh, yeah, Pixar leans into it real hard here. Uh, I enjoyed it. There's no fucking toys that come to life in it. What's up? Um, anyway, what am I talking about? Right, you can review our show on iTunes if I didn't war room please spare us and have me listen to Katie Rich rattle on and on and on about all the least interesting parts of the royal family who she loves unreservedly mm-hmm. yeah you don't Royalist want to hear it forever. neither do I leave us some reviews <laughs> and I'm Dave Gonzalez you can follow me on Twitter at DA7E you can also listen to me on The Storm a Lost Rewatch podcast as we're barreling through the final season of Lost and those are the exciting things that you could hear me on but just in terms of nerd-ass shit, I, I should really point you in the direction of still watching Loki over there, produced by Katie and Vanity Fair and myself, starring Miss Joanna Robinson, getting all the Loki facts. It's uh, going to be a fun season for dumb comic stuff. We should definitely talk about Loki on this show at some point. Wow, Loki, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I just... The fact that Owen Wilson looks that good with gray hair is a uh, shock and a pleasure. I still haven't seen... 
haven't seen a frame. You need to see the frames with Owen Wilson in them. He looks amazing. Wow, the Infinity Stones. Wow. 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 Uh, time travel. Wow. Uh, well, uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair on the Little Goldman podcast for this week. We're looking back at Witness, in which Harrison Ford is fucking hot, and that is the thing you need to know about it. And other things happen too, but mostly Harrison Ford is really hot. Uh, and you should listen to the Loki podcast too, like Dave said. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K A T E Y R A C H, and we're all on Twitter at F I T W R. Where uh, you can tell us to watch Loki, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was: In honor of the hitman's wife's bodyguard, what cinematic wife deserves an action spin? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week.